You're listening to TFM. Want to join in the conversation and share your thoughts on this episode? Join the Babel Conference, our listeners' discussion group on Facebook. Just type B-A-B-E-L into the Facebook search field, and we'll look forward to seeing you there. Hey, everyone. I'm Rod Roddenberry, and you're listening to Trek FM. Hello and welcome to TFM's local books and comic show here for Star Trek, and I'm just one of the hosts here, Matthew Rushing, and so excited to have back with me, as he is, every single episode is Mr. Casey Pettit. How are you, Casey? Hello, I am good. I feel like we've been meeting a lot more lately because we've just been diving into so many books and it's exciting. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. I mean, uh, we got the opportunity to talk about the the making of book for uh, Star Trek First Contact, which was really fun. And uh, we actually kind of slid that into our schedule. So it, you're getting uh, a couple more episodes here at the end of the year, which is fun because uh, we're actually covering a book called Ship of the Line by Diane Carey, which was the prequel to First Contact, which, you know, um, I'm very excited to be able to, to finally get to here on this show. Yeah, and I've never read it before, so I'm yeah looking forward to talking. Oh about man, it for I sure. can't I can't wait to hear what you think. Uh, before <laughs> before we get into that, we've got some news that we've got to cover. We've got a new comic that's uh, come out, so we're going to be talking about Star Trek Resurgence Part One. But we want to thank everybody for joining us. We really do appreciate it, and uh, you know we'd really. Uh, like it if you would go over to whatever podcatcher you're listening to this show on and you hit the subscribe button um, that way you'll get the shows as soon as they drop and then we'd also appreciate it you know if you're on uh, spotify or apple podcasts give us a star rating and a review uh, those five stars make a huge difference in people finding the show and uh, we read all the reviews we get out on the podcast, so we can do that for you as well. Uh, you can also find us on social media. We're on Twitter and Instagram under Trek FM. We're on Facebook at facebook.com slash Trek FM. We've got our listeners-only discussion group, and we'd love to talk to you there. And you could talk to listeners from all over the world. Uh, you can also find us online at trek.fm, and you can even go to trek.fm slash contact and you can send us an email if you'd like. Uh, I, Casey, I was just reminded of this because I got an email on the other show, the 602 Club, and I was like, well, I would love to get some emails here for Literary Trek, yeah. so that would be fantastic. And last but not least, we'd really appreciate if you would support the network through Patreon. Patreon.com slash TrekFM. We have some wonderful social producers. One is sitting across the virtual table with me right now, Casey Pettit, as well as Greg Rosier. We do appreciate their support, and... In all honesty, most people don't know this, but it actually costs quite a bit of money to put a network of this size uh, online. And so we're a little bit below where we'd like to be. So, you know, in the gift of the holiday season, maybe you'd like to support us. So go to patreon.com slash trekfm and see how you can be part of the team. So, Casey, uh, 
as we look at uh, Star Trek Resurgence Part 1, were you aware that not only we were getting this comic, uh, but that it's going to be the tie-in to a new upcoming Star Trek video game? You know, we've been getting so many comics lately that I'm having a hard time keeping up with what's coming <laughs> yes. out. I, th- I think I'd heard about this, and I've certainly heard about the video game, but, you know... It's kind of cool how they're they're doing this with the comics. It, it gives us a lot of different comics to read. And, you know, when, every time they do a prequel to a new season of the show or to a video game in this case. So, I, yeah, this one really wasn't on my radar. So when uh, I saw it on the outline today, I thought, well, yeah, another comic to read another week, another comic. It's a not a not a a great time for Star Trek novels since we've only had a few this year, but it's an awesome time to be a comic fan. That's for sure. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, I, I think what I actually enjoyed about this comic was the fact that it is set in the 24th century, uh, and we're about five years after the Dominion War, and we're dealing with um, at least one character we know, uh, which is Leah Brahms. And then we have this this new uh, starship uh, that we've never had before, the Resolute, uh, which is a great name for a, a Star Trek starship. And you know, I I really I I, th- I think the thing about this comic is is that you know I don't want to get too deep into the story because I thought that this comic had a really interesting story to it, and um, it it. You know, it involves lots of things that are classic to Star Trek, like uh, new warp engine design possibilities, kidnapping, covert missions. I mean, this this comic just kind of has it all. And, you know, I, I think. I, I don't know, there's just something about it that felt refreshing uh, to me, and I, I can't quite put my finger on it. But I, what did you think, Casey? No, I agree. I uh, You know. For especially not having really any background knowledge of this comic, you know, we don't have anything to base it on since it's a prequel to a a video game that hasn't come out yet. I actually thought this did a really good job of introducing all of who I assume are going to be kind of the major characters in the video game. Um, so really, even in just this first issue, you, you, we've got a few core characters that we focus on, but I already kind of know who this crew is to some extent and how they work together. And and like you said, there's a lot of great Star Trek tropes going on in here that um, make it feel like this is, these are characters, this is a ship that would show up on the show somewhere that this is like an adventure they're starting that we would see on screen somewhere. So, you know, it, it, yeah, it just it was all over the place, but I'm I'm really intrigued to see where this is going to go because they've, you know, we've we've had some some comic series uh, in the not too distant past that ha- have been kind of a slow burn. This one I feel like kind of takes off right away, and um, yeah, I'm just I'm really looking forward to seeing where this goes, and honestly, I'm going to be a little little uh sad i think when the comics are done because then i'm gonna have to go out and get a video game and i'm not a mm-hmm. gamer so yeah. i don't know what i'm gonna finish the story yeah yeah i mean i think this is this is really interesting to me and 
in that, the thing that really piques my curiosity here is the fact that this is a lead-in to a video game. And, you know, I, I actually, I'm intrigued enough to want to go learn more about the video game. And Mm -hmm. part of that is because, you know, something we were talking about off air uh, because of all the the recent interviews that have been going on um, with the new showrunner and the final showrunner of Star Trek Picard uh, for season three is the way in which they talked about basically Star Trek legacy. And um, this, I, I think maybe that was what, maybe that's what resonates with this comic with me is that it feels as though it takes the legacy of Star Trek seriously from the beginning by setting it post-war Dominion, a Dominion War, um, also you know giving us uh, some things that we are familiar with. We've seen this starship before in Deep Space Nine, even though we've never seen the inside of it, um, this type of design. And, you know, the uniforms are familiar. We have one familiar yeah. character, and then, like you said, there's a bunch of uh, different kind of Star Trek tropes. And so I I feel like that's a good place to start. Um, and, you know, and two, we can go pretty much anywhere with the story because, you know, there's only one character here that we know. So whether or not they live or die or what happens there is 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 all up in the air. You know, even even for Leah Brahms, who is who's that character we know anything could happen right and so i it just feels almost like um it 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 feels almost like an aventine series right where you know a couple of the characters and then the rest of the characters are new you know Uh, but there's enough familiarity to ground you and then the rest of it is just an enjoyable exercise in being in the universe that you love. And so I, I, yeah, that that's the thing that I'm, I came in this comic with absolutely no expectations, obviously, because yeah. it's like a tie into a video game. And I was just really pleasantly surprised. Yeah. This is a series where, I mean, I wouldn't mind if they kept going mm-hmm. past the video game. Yeah. I mean, it, you know, like you said, it, it's five years after the end of the dominion war, but it's, you know, several years before Star Trek Picard. So there's a lot of time to play with, too. And again, like you said, there's just the one character so far that we have any familiarity with. So it is kind of, you know, as Picard says, the sky's the limit. You know, they, they can kind of do anything. And um, yeah, I don't know what else to say. They're off to a great start. I'm really looking forward to the next issue. And mm-hmm. Dang it, I might have to get the video game. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, uh, I hope that you have an Xbox Series X or S or the PS5 or 4 uh, because uh, that's that's apparently what it's going to be played on. Uh, I'm a little bit disappointed in that because that means that I would not be able to play this game unless I finally bought the Xbox X uh, because I only have the Xbox One and... Um, yeah. You know, I've been thinking about doing that because I know the uh, the new uh, Star Wars uh, Jedi Fallen Order is going to be coming out next year. Um, but that is not the time to do it right now. But we'll see. Um, but yeah, I mean, uh, if you if you were to rate this, Casey, what do you think? Honestly, I'd probably have to give it a five out of five just because I'm, like I said, kind of blown away by my interest in this. I'm, I'm really looking forward to seeing where it goes. I... 
there was nothing in this that I thought needed to be taken out. You know, we're getting to know the characters. It was just a great introduction to the se- to the series. Um, and, you know, the artwork was great. The, the, the writing was good. It wasn't, you know, it, it was a quick read. I don't know. I just <laughs> really, really yeah. enjoyed it. So I'm five. You know, I think for this one, I'd probably go four out of five. Uh, and it's it's not any knock against it or anything. And part of it is just like it it's not – there's nothing perfect about it or whatever. But I think like you said, the best part about this is is that I am intrigued enough to, to really be excited to see what does happen. I believe this is a five-issue arc. And um, so to me, that, that's exciting. And, and I think one of the things you mentioned – is that that this story starts off with a bang like it we we start and we go you know that this doesn't seem to be like this first issue doesn't feel like filler in any way it feels very important to the story because it's really setting up the the main crux of the story and some of the you know the different relationships between crew members and the captain and Leah Brahms in the first place so you know all of that i think is is it the the pacing feels great the story feels good you said the, i mean and and i thought the artwork was was good as well so yeah absolutely i definitely think if you're a star trek fan uh and even if you're not you know interested in the game at all this is a fun story uh and so i'm yeah. excited to see where it goes uh, so yeah, definitely four out of five for me. There's a good uh, cliffhanger kind of uh, yes reveal at the end, yes. uh, especially if you're uh, kind of a deep cut next generation fan. You know, I'm not going to say any more than that. Pick up this issue, read it. It's uh, it's definitely worth worth a read. Well, Casey, I, oh, I've just looked at my watch. I think we got to get out of here. We got to go to that the new ship launch. I think it's uh, a new Enterprise, maybe. Let's go take a look. So we are at Ship of the Line by Diane Carey, which was a hardcover release, which is always fun in Star Trek books back in the day. Uh, And it was the one that was meant to kind of fill in the gap between Star Trek Generations and First Contact. In fact, giving us and everybody uh, the, the first flight of the Enterprise E, which is very exciting. But... Before we get all into all that, honestly, Casey, one of the things that this book does is kind of fill in some gaps. And so uh, one of the things that this book does, though, is it starts with Morgan Bateson's backstory. Uh, so we're we're getting a chance to because he's going to be a big part of this story, as is his crew. And so we begin before they get caught in the temporal loop, which was an interesting thing to be able to do and I think an important part of the story to do because if we're going to spend a lot of time with them as characters we do need some more introduction to them so how did you how did that feel for you kind of coming into this book I mean knowing that he's on the cover and everything this is your first time to read it. were you expecting to spend you know a good quarter of the book with his crew before they hit the time loop I wasn't, and I am, was so pleasantly surprised by that, because if we'd have just picked up, and it would have been so easy to just pick up, you know, three years later, which is when the bulk of the book is says three years after uh, the events of Cause and Effect, which is like right after the destruction of the Enterprise-D, 
it would have been easy to pick up right there, get a few people from his crew, whatever, but just focus on Morgan Bateson. But since his crew, I mean, his whole crew came with him. It wasn't just him on that ship that came through. Um, it was really cool to see them in action. And, you know, the, the USS Bozeman was, uh, they call it a cutter, but it's like basically like a, a border defense ship. Um, which could be just, you know, a patrol ship. It might not be that exciting, but like he had, we alluded to some of his kind of previous adventures, this, this rival Klingon that he had, you know, kind of like Kirk had his rivals, like Bateson had his own too. And he was kind of a big man in this sector. And so to get this story that culminates in them going through the, the temporal anomaly that puts them in, into the next generation era was really cool to see because then by the time we like catch up, we know these people were invested in them and it gives us a little something to kind of build on rather than just starting to get to know him from the moment they come through the time loop. So I, I'm really glad that, that uh, she spent some time in that era, especially as it, as it leads into the rest of the story. Um, because it was it was just a good way to start it. It was and it was totally unexpected because this book then ends up spanning so much time and and eras. We get you know kind of Star Trek. I don't know. Was it Star Trek two, three? Um, was was it set before Star Trek two? I can't remember that. Yeah, this would be stuff. before Star Trek two. Uh, yeah. Oh right, because they had just gotten the monster maroons. <laughs> they kind mm-hmm. of mentioned that. So yeah, I mean, it, it, we just get so many different eras. It was really, really fun, really good, good way to start the book. I thought. Yeah, I agree with you, um, and I think you're absolutely right that this is this is the place that you want to start if you're going to use this this uh, you know character as a big part of the story. We and and that crew um, because you know we we don't know a lot about them, and and I think to give us an inside look into their psyche and you know what their life was like on that type of ship back in the day um you know Carrie kind of uh, talks about the idea of them basically being like the US coast guard you know they're ships that are closer into home but especially in this time period where you've got the klingons and the romulans all those adversaries and of course you would have Lots of other races there on the frontier of space being more adversarial towards uh, the Federation as it's growing at this time period, um, you know, makes a lot of sense. And it really puts into perspective, you know, this idea uh, that we're kind of kind of use later and we're going to talk about when it comes to Picard kind of trying to rectify in his own mind his own journey and where he wants to go and kind of bridging the gap, right, um, between – these generations um, and, you know, how things have changed, but also how things are, you know, the same. And so, uh, you know, I think Batenson and starting with that in the past was really important. Um, but there is another gap that we kind of are in, which I think um, does not work at all. Um, and that is the way in which this book deals with what we know from Deep Space Nine and the Cardassian Klingon 
conflict where this would be set um, with that happening. And, and none of what she writes here honestly lines up at all with what we know happened in Deep Space Nine. And I, I, I was really surprised by um, that. I wondered if, you know, whenever a new series, especially in this time period of Star Trek started, and they started doing the novels, a lot of the early novels were really based on the series Bible before the author had even gotten to see Mm -hmm. anything on screen, see how the characters um, interacted or spoke or anything like that. I I kind of wonder if there was a similar situation here where when she started writing the book or coming up with the plot, if that was kind of in the early season four of Deep Space Nine, where they maybe, as she was writing it, they were still flushing out things in the writer's room of Deep Space Nine, and she just kind of had maybe a general plot to go from and thought they were going to go a different direction than they did. It's... That doesn't totally make sense, though, just because, you know, that it wouldn't have taken a lot to fix it, basically. They, they, they could have added a couple lines to, to fix some of it. So, yeah, it's, it's a little mind-boggling. And what's interesting, too, is that season four of Deep Space Nine is in 95 to 96. This book comes out in 97. So, yeah. there's not really an excuse for getting so much of this so wrong um, unless it is written way earlier, which again, doesn't make a lot of sense because the the book coming out in 97, this would have come out right before first contact comes out. And because she has actual lines from the book, you know, at the very end and, you know, maybe that's added in at the very end, but still, you know, uh, yeah, I think that's that's one of, you know, I hated I hated to get kind of uh, to a big negative right at the beginning, but that is a huge negative to this book is that as you're reading it, if if you're any kind of fan of Deep Space Nine, you're sitting there scratching your head, thinking this this just doesn't fit our our twenty fourth century storyline just doesn't really fit with where we are, and and it's. I hate to say this, but I, I think it's absolutely true. It's kind of inexcusable that that's the case. Especially with an author like Diane Carey, who was kind of the cream of the crop of of authors back in this time period. And I think she typically wrote original series novels. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, but she had written Next Generation before, and, and maybe she just wasn't too into Deep Space Nine. I'm not sure. One one interesting thing is I, you know, while we're on the subject of things just not working, I I've personally felt like the Madrid storyline didn't completely work, mm-hmm. just because it, I don't know. It seemed kind of shoehorned in the the whole plot with Picard and and Madrid. Uh, it, it just. I didn't need any of it, I guess. I didn't care what Madrid was up to at this point. I didn't care what his relationship with his daughter was like. I think it did add a little bit for Picard's character and help him. 
maybe get a little bit of closure, but even then, um, he's, he's got other things that he's, you know, he was assimilated by the Borg, you know, <laughs> like that was probably way worse than what Madrid did to him. So I, I felt like it, it was just an odd thing to do using him. I mean, they could have used any Cardassian mm-hmm. to create these camps that these people were in. So having him felt a little bit more just because of name recognition yeah. or, or something. Yeah. I mean, that's a, that's a really it, you're absolutely right. Like it's 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 one of those things with the, the Madrid storyline for Picard. It it obviously ties into the story we're telling with Picard. But the problem is is that it doesn't fit with what we're talking about with like the 24th century story. Like it it just mm-hmm. feels so off that it, you're kind of left in a place where you're you're almost reeling. Um, because you just did, this doesn't fit in. And I, I find that, I, I think, you know, in all honesty, that's, that's a really frustrating place to be is, is that how much it doesn't fit in. And I think that's more of the problem to me than what they do with Madrid. I mean, you know, that what they do with him seems like obvious, right? Yeah. And I think it, uh, there's easy, easy ways to fix this and make it fit in with that storyline that we know from deep space nine um they just didn't and i think that uh, that's what you know makes that frustrating so um you know it's it's um it is what it is and uh that that's <laughs> that's the unfortunate part of this is that whereas the batenson storyline was a real key in filling in the gaps. You, you know, the, the Madrid storyline and the connecting with the Klingon Cardassian conflict and its influence and in, in, uh, the way it touched on the Federation really didn't fit in very much because, uh, too, the other part of this is that the villain that we get, the Klingon villain, with his connection with Batenson, also doesn't fit. Because, again, mm-hmm. it's not fitting in with the Klingon-Cardassian conflict in a way that makes sense in any way, shape, or form. Yeah, when you take the Cardassian stuff out of it, Bateson's rivalry with this Klingon and this Klingon who's been kind of stewing for 90, 93 years uh, to almost get his revenge, that was actually... I, I, I kind of liked that just because, you know, what happens when you take somebody from essentially Kirk's era where they have to be a little bit more, um, you know, the cowboy diplomacy or, you know, they're out on the frontier and have to make decisions on their own. They, they make these personal enemies. You take Bateson out of the mix for 90 years. You've got this Klingon who is all but dishonored. I mean, I guess he really is dishonored and his son is dishonored and has to sit with that for 90 years. Then, all of a sudden finds out that Bateson's back as his old enemy is back. And that I thought was, a you know, and then actually, and then Bateson going out to um, antagonize the Klingon essentially, because he kind of just has this, this innate sense that the Klingon, that his rival, I can't remember his name is like Kovara or something like that, but that, that he's out there waiting and, he, and he's right. And this kind of, duel i guess that they were having with each other was a really interesting storyline you know this one that spans generations and 
um, gave Bateson something to kind of fight for. But it was also kind of just once we got we got this whole backstory, and then once we're in the 24th century, that whole storyline was not glossed over, but just not as important as I thought it was going to be after reading, you know, what I thought was a very good, you know, kind of first quarter of the book with his backstory. So I, you know, it's the one thing I think it did is helped us get, get to know Bateson a little bit more and how he's trying to fit in and how he still feels out of place in this century. And, you know, kind of like Scotty did when he showed up in relics, he felt like kind of a fish out of water. He, you know, had to relearn everything, he had to recertify and, um, you know, having, you know, Bates and having something to kind of fight for was really an interesting storyline for him. And although, you know, I mean, there's other stories I just read cold equations and he shows up in one of those books too, but you know, we don't get a lot of baits in in other novels. So, you know, getting some of him was fun and, you know, actually adding some to this character in that way was, mm -hmm. I think, a, a good thing just for this character that was on screen for what, like 20 seconds? <laughs> yeah. Yep. Yeah. You know, to me, I think the biggest strength of the book is the storyline that we have for Picard and the way in which you know there there there's a change that happens between generations and first contact and a big part of that and you can always attribute it to the conversations that Kirk and Picard have while they're together um, which I think is a hundred percent accurate and yet this book uh, takes that a little bit deeper as Picard comes to grips with the loss of the Enterprise D. He's also, and and I think she rightly reminds us that he also lost the Stargazer. And this has a, a massive impact on him and his crew. Uh, and, you know, specifically Picard figuring out what he wants to do with his life. Do, you know, does he want to take this opportunity to pursue, you know, archaeology or being like a professor or, you know, he, he has all these other interests. And the the answer to this becomes um, him being able to to interact with a, a holographic program that Kirk had put together um, and and that somebody had put together about Kirk with all of his logs and basically creating the closest you could get to meeting Kirk uh, by being able to relive his experiences and his thoughts about the different missions um, and, you know, a really interactive experience. And so to me, that was fascinating to see that she continues the trend that you got in generations and then it, amplifies it by helping Picard come to the realization of who he is, what's he, what he wants to be, what he wants to do, and with realizing that it is okay to not be perfect, because Picard, I think, has always dealt with that idea of perfectionism, and he realizes that, you know, by spending more time with Kirk in this way, Kirk didn't have it all together. 
Kirk made mistakes. Kirk was, you know, somebody who um, is not a legend. Kirk was just a man who struggled like all other men to to figure out whether or not they were making up, they were making the right decision. And in fact, she actually uses a line that she wrote in the New Earth series where he says, you know, I'm not I'm not choosing between right and wrong. I'm choosing from worse from bad to worse, basically. And mm-hmm. um and I thought that was great because, you know, that is something that I think anyone who is in this type of leadership position, you're gonna be stuck with those positions and, and it can be very difficult to deal with. And so yeah, to me, this was absolutely the best part of the book was Picard and his journey towards, uh, you know, figuring out who he wants to be. I I completely agree with that. It's I kind of had a a, a love hate with those kind of holodeck scenes just because so they were they got to be so long and were just sh- showing you know episodes of the original series basically. Um, but at the same time, what I really liked about it was that Picard got to interact with Kirk in the middle of those. And why did you do that? What were you thinking? And 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 that's kind of how he learned that Kirk didn't have it all. He was sometimes just guessing, or he just had to make a decision fast, or you know, like you said, he had to decide between bad and worse, or two bad choices, or whatever. Um, and I thought. I thought Picard's journey in this was so well done because of who we know Picard to be both before and after. And even in the Star Trek Picard series, he's so closed off and compartmentalizes his feelings that he at at this point has not really processed the fact that he's lost the enterprise D or the fact, I mean, he does, he has this, you know, realization, like you said, that he's now lost both ships that he's ever commanded, but he's trying to decide if he just should move on, you know, when in reality, anybody would probably fall into depression or anything. And I think he is in his own way, um, which is why he's considering if he should essentially retire or do something else, become a Starfleet Academy Commandant or something like that. Um, you know, and he, he has to learn from Kirk and just from, from everything that he's doing that he it, it's okay to feel bad about losing a ship. And, you know, he's, he's almost, you know, when he, when he boards the Enterprise E for the first time, he's simultaneously kind of jealous of Bateson. Like he wants, like Picard wants to take command but also part of him is like, it's just another ship. It just happens to be called Enterprise. And, you know, by the end of it, you can tell he he really want like the Enterprises. There, there's a legacy there with the Enterprises. He said it's the flagship of the fleet. You know, as the Enterprise is barreling towards Cardassian space, cutting up planets and everything. He sees that that means something that the fact that it's the enterprise, even though it's a different one and um, can kind of realize that the ship really is kind of part of his crew and something that he can care about. And yeah, I I thought his journey was really well done through throughout this book. And he just, it, 
like you said, it, it gave him just more time with Kirk than he didn't have in Star Trek Generations. Yeah, I 100% agree with that. And another thing I was thinking of uh, as you were talking is, you know, this book is called Ship the Line, and, and there are a lot of quotes in here from the Horatio Hornblower series, which we know actually is what inspired Gene Roddenberry for uh, Picard in the first place. So I thought that was very apropos. Um, but mm-hmm. the, the whole point of that is to remind Picard that, and he's reminded by Kirk, is that, you know, the ship is a part of your crew. And I think, you know, what really made that ring true was, you know, when you think of First Contact, um, you know, I just rewatched it after, you know, we talked about the book, um, the making of book. And, you know, when he tells Lily, you know, if you're speaking of home, I like to think of this ship as home, you know, and even though the Enterprise E is new to him, he the ships are home. Right. And 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 in that way, you know, I think Picard actually in this book, because at the beginning he talks about how, you know, the crew might not be together and everything and they've got to get used to that. And they've been lucky to have, you know, um, each other for this amount of time, but that's not normal. And, you know, I, I think w- what it comes down to for him is that he does f- realize that this is special. And part of that, I think, is being able to see those logs through Kirk's eyes when he sees and he can see what McCoy and Spock and Scotty and Sulu and Uhura all mean to Kirk, right? And who they are to him. And he he kind of can, I think he comes to the realization, it is okay for these people to be my family. You know, and I think that's something that and then that family is housed in a ship, which is your home. And, you know, in in that way, it becomes about protecting your home, that your your home is just as much a part of you as, you know, the people that live in it in many ways. Right. Um, And even more so when you're on a vessel that literally is keeping you alive in the middle of desolate space. So, you know, I I think that all of these things just really make sense. and, And I really appreciate it about the book and Picard's journey. And again, I, I think it is the part that works the best in the, in, in the story because Peyton's story and journey, I think it feels a little bit more, I guess, truncated. Um, I, I feel like, you know, there's, I mean, his story is about learning that he doesn't quite know everything there is to know about, you know, Klingons just because he fought Klingons 90 years ago. And, um, and I felt like, I don't know, I wish that there had, you know, if you're going to tell the story, I almost feel like the whole story needed to be about him and his crew and this realization other than trying to cram it into the story about, you know, the Enterprise E and all of that, because it's just, I mean, whereas Picard's journey is really well done, I think, and obviously the the main point of the story, I think if you're going to use this character of Batenson, I feel like he does deserve, even though we only saw him for like 20, 30 seconds in the episode, you know, because of who he's played by, you know, Kelsey Grammer, you feel like he deserves more. And um, yeah, that's just what I'm left with. I I, he deserved more. Yeah. 
And I like that throughout the book we got he was so sure of himself. You know, with the Klingons that like, you know, I may be old school, but I still know what I'm doing. And ultimately, you know, towards the end, he and Riker kind of um, come to an understanding with each other that, you know, where Bateson is basically telling Riker, hey, you were right all along. I shouldn't have done what I did and I should have taken a different approach. And Riker's telling him, yeah, but you were right because the Klingons were planning to attack and you did have a good instinct about that. And so you know, Bateson's journey was really kind of like this, you know, finding his place in this new century and understanding that, yeah, he might still have good instincts, but he also still needs to learn uh, how certain things operate, I guess, in, in the, in, in the current time period. And, one one of the interesting things I actually thought was, especially as you were talking, you know, with Picard about he got so like, oh, we're a clue, uh, we're a crew. We've been lucky to stay together, you know. Like we need to just appreciate, you know, what we've got. And he kind of had the same attitude that he had in the chain of command episodes that Madrid was actually in, you know, when um, Jellico took over the Enterprise. He basically mm-hmm. got pretty. I don't want to say cold hearted with the crew, but just a very matter of fact, like this is Starfleet. We go where we're sent. I'm being replaced as captain. You will serve him like you served me. And then Riker had this really contentious attitude with Jellicoe during the, those episodes, um, similar to how Riker acts with Bateson mm-hmm. in this book where, you know, Riker kind of has a chip on his shoulder being back on the Enterprise, but not under the command of Picard. He really feels like Picard should have it, not Bateson. And you you put, he's uh, being a pain in the command seat, which, I mean, he and one of the best parts of the book, I think, was when Riker and Bateson went at it. Like, they just went, like, they had this debate back and forth for pages um, on the right thing to do. And ultimately, Riker saying, like, you're the captain. I'm going to fo- I'm not going to, like, walk off the bridge. I'm not leaving the ship. I'm going to follow your orders. But basically made his point really clear that he totally didn't agree with Bateson and their approach to go kind of take on the Klingons for a shakedown cruise. Um, but, but, you know, there's almost a journey for Riker in that, too, in that, um, He's just kind of, he's not even jealous for himself. Like, he wanted command of the Enterprise E. He wanted command for Picard of the Enterprise E and was just upset with Bateson for getting in his way. And I think over the course of the book, Riker kind of comes to realize that, hey, maybe sometimes the old ways can be a good way. Um, You know, Bateson had the right idea, just got there with the wrong logic, basically, mm-hmm. I think is yeah. kind of how it said is, you know, um, and I don't know. I, I, I kind of, uh, enjoyed Riker in this just because of how aggressive he was getting on his views because he was, I don't know. I found myself agreeing with Riker a lot. Like Bateson was being a little too cavalier with this shakedown cruise. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think 
the uh, the interesting thing about that is is that you know Riker, all of his points are valid, right? The, the and the arguments that he's making with Bates and his his arguments are completely valid. You know, this ship isn't ready. There are tons of bugs. You know, everything is is more complicated. Um, this ship is meant to be run by over a thousand people. They've got three hundred. You know, I mean, all of these things um, that. You know, Bateson is not used to when you're on a much smaller ship and the technology wasn't quite as complicated then. And so, you know, I I do like Riker in this book, but I also uh, like you. I think there's an interesting journey for Riker, I think, learning from the old and being willing to learn from the old being, I mean, like the, 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 the great thing about the book is the way in which, you know, he does show humility, uh, to say when he was wrong and when he was able to learn, you know? So I think there's something really to that instead of just that bravado and machismo, uh, Riker, you know, which you know, I think a character like Riker kind of gets, um, dinged for, but here, I think written in a way in which he truly is somebody who when it comes down to it, he's willing to learn from anyone as long as they do have something to teach. And I think there's a humility that he kind of um, gains in the book. Uh, And, uh, you know, he's willing to admit that. And I think that makes for a good character. So um, one of the things in, in the story is, is that, Bateson talks about the idea that Starfleet has the advantage because it has diversity. Um, But then it also does this by pointing out that Star Trek uh, has also dealt with alien cultures, monoliths, and is continuing to do so in this book. And it kind of really hurt the whole idea to me because you just pointing out that, oh, we've only got Klingon warriors. Like, you know, not all Klingons are just warriors. Um, you know, it, it just, it was, it was oxymoronic. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It, I, I did find that a little interesting that, I mean, she literally has Bates in talking about these cultures as monoliths and how Starfleet, uh, or how it, he doesn't even say Starfleet says they're monoliths. He just basically comes out and says that they're monoliths or that they're, you know, these monocultures that don't, yeah, they don't have anything except warriors and all Cardassians are torturers and all, you know, like, and, but then that's how the book treats it too. So I thought it was, mm-hmm. uh, it was a little ironic that, um, I think she was trying to make a point but kind of failed by basically showing exactly what he was talking about and and saying that oh no they really are are these monolithic cultures so it was um and i mean in the book we saw very little diversity in our crews you know as far as i know like it was mostly humans on his crew it was all you know like um right you, you know like they 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 didn't really show any of the diversity he says they've got diversity but i didn't see it anywhere so it, it was kind of a funny um a funny bit to put in there without really doing anything with it yeah 
Yeah. Um, something that uh, you had mentioned that I thought was really um, just, uh, as I thought more about it, I was like, yeah, these this book does just kind of end really quickly. Like the Madrid storyline comes to close really quickly. The Batenson storyline with Picard and the rest of the crew all comes to an end very quickly, basically because it feels like it turns into Home Alone at the end. Um, <laughs> and uh, yeah, then everything's done. And it just kind of like, yeah. And now Picard is, uh, oh, Batenson's just giving up the Enterprise to Picard. And oh, nope. Yep. We're out of page space. <laughs> yeah, it was weird. <laughs> yeah. In the, in the last several chapters of the book, like all of a sudden, all these plots were just kind of uh, coming to a close. And it was just, it, it, and no, actually, they weren't coming to a close. They had just closed in between chapters yeah. or something. And they, uh, like even Bateson's crew that were stranded on the Klingon ship, they just kind of show up. They're like, oh, yeah, we got ourselves out and figured out how to work the ship. And now we're here to help save the day. Like, oh, OK, that would have been a neat story to see. Or, um, yeah, a, a lot of it was just like, you know, even when Picard comes to rescue the uh, prisoners on the Madrid planet or Madrid village or whatever they called it. Um he shows up and then everyone just kind of comes out and is basically like, oh, cool, we're saved. And then he's like, you need to fight with us. And they say, okay. And then next chapter, the fight's over and we've won. And welcome to Star Trek First Contact. It, it For the journey that we'd been on, good or bad, it was just a, a, kind of a sad way to end this book where there there could have been so much um, so much more to it. And there was just too much tell and no show. You know, we just, they may have just well had like kind of cut it off at chapter 20 or whatever and just said, you know, later that day, you know, or something. That's kind of how it felt in those, in those moments. So, uh, you know, I'm glad things turned out the way they did. I just would have liked to seen some of it. And for being a hardcover book, they had space. <laughs> no, a hundred percent agree. So, um, the other thing about this book, and and I think uh, obviously this is something that we I think have complained about her books before, but you mentioned the fact that this book has a lot of jargon in it, especially when it comes to military and, and naval jargon. But I will also say, on top of that, I think there's no character here except for characters we see within those uh, holodecks uh that sounds like themselves um yeah. uh, you know uh, especially our TNG cast none of them sound like the characters so mm-hmm. um I, and that uh, to me that just got really really frustrating um be, yeah so yeah, the fact that the insistence on calling anybody lower than Captain Mister, we've never referred to Riker as Mister Riker, but that's how he was referred to throughout the book. Or, you know, we sometimes get Mister LaForge or Mister Scott or things like that, but never Mister Riker. Like that just doesn't even mm-hmm. sound right saying it. Um, you know, some some of it, especially with Bateson's crew. Um, I could forgive a little bit more because his character was 
kind of put out there like he he said he loved the origin of words and like he would ex- he would explain um you know the origins of words which i felt like it was more like her explaining to the reader what it was but still like putting it in as as bateson's character was fine um and even having his ship and his crew kind of following more naval traditions was fine but then putting that on our next generation crew and you know and kirk's crew and everybody it it just didn't totally it, it really took me out of it it because like you said they just didn't sound like themselves and so it there's a time and a place i, I enjoyed learning about that stuff and that's clearly what she enjoys writing but like i said there's a time and a place and a lot of this book was not the place mm-hmm. yeah i um I did just think it was one of those places where, uh, you know, I, the 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 jargon was what it was, and I'm I'm used to that in her books in many ways. But I just think, you know, obviously for tie-in fiction, you have to have the characters sound like the characters. I have to be able to hear their voice when you I'm reading their their dialogue, and I could never hear any of the TNG voices because none of them sounded right um Mm. and to me that's always a big frustration uh in a book and and in all honesty um makes it a little bit of a failure to me um so i you know i'm really interested because we had some really good things to say about the book um we also had some criticisms there of the book so i can't wait to see where you end up landing with your ratings for ship of the line yeah, I ended up um, giving this one a two out of five. Um, it's probably inching towards two and a half, but not enough to bump it up to a three on Goodreads. Um, you know, uh, there was a lot of really good ideas in this. Um, I, I almost would have preferred just a Lost Era book with Bateson and his crew. Um, maybe ending you know that book at the at the anomaly and then having him show up in this book somehow i, I don't know it, it's just like the, this book was just very disjointed you know we've already talked about a lot of the stuff that we didn't like about it and you know those those things just detracted a lot for me it's it's obviously very well written diane carey's a really you know great writer but you know, for this particular story and these characters, it just was um, not not really working for me. So, landed at two out of five. Where were you at? Yeah, I am. Uh, I'm actually in the same place. Um, I I think uh, this book, like you said, uh, perfectly. This book had some interesting ideas, so some good ideas, especially ones where. Uh, and we talked about the, the best ideas was really dealing with the identity of Picard and, 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 and kind of cementing the change that starts with generations. Um, and I thought that was fantastic. But yeah, I think the book is of too many minds and is trying to do too many things. Uh, and it just needed more focus. And that's where I think the book could have really come together. Um, and it just, you know, it doesn't quite come together. Uh, as as you would like it to, so um, it it's unfortunate because you know you want a book like this to succeed, especially since it involves you know the the premiere of one of my favorite Starship Enterprises, which is the E, which you know I think 
the E is is you know to me along with the uh, refit Enterprise is just a beautiful ship. Uh, I've always been a huge fan. I love it inside and out. I think it was beautifully designed in every way, and in many ways we don't spend enough time with the E, which is weird. Um, so um, yeah, all in all, it's 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 just kind of a miss. Well, even though we didn't uh, maybe give that uh, full, you know, praise on that book, it was still really fun reading kind of the first adventure of the Enterprise E right after reading the making of Star Trek First Contact and watching that movie. And uh, I, I don't know if she did this on purpose, but, you know, with our next book being Enterprise, the first adventure, we're moving right into another, you know, first adventure of an Enterprise. So, whether you did it, uh, you know, by planning or not, I, I'm excited. I'm really excited to get into that one because it's another one that I have mm-hmm. not read yet. Yeah, well, I can't give away all of my secrets, uh, Casey, but uh, no, I, I'm right there with you. I'm actually excited to dive into that because I've never read it. And so to me, that's it's always fun to and we're actually going to. um as we end this year and get into next year, we're going to be reading a bunch of books that I've never read. And so to me, that's fascinating. We're going to uh, be diving into that. Uh, we've also got the new David Mack book that's coming out. We'll be talking to him as well. We've got Voyager and Deep Space Nine coming up. Uh, we're, we're going to be digging into some of the other franchises that don't get quite as much love uh, just because there aren't as many books for them. So we're going to be doing that. So, so much coming up for you here. Hopefully everybody's continued to enjoy it. But Casey, people, you know, want to catch up with you here in the holiday season because they're like, hmm, what does Casey want for Christmas? Where can people <laughs> find you? Well, you can find me all over social media at Knitting Trekkie. I'm... Uh, I have recently discovered Mastodon, which is where a lot of people are going in the great Twitter exodus. But uh, for now, I'm also on Twitter and Instagram, too. And um, find me lurking around in the Babel Conference on Facebook. I really like uh, interacting with people there. And then you can also find me doing another podcast called Mickey's Marvels, which is a uh, where we, we discuss everything under the Disney umbrella, including Star Wars, Marvel, National Geographic, what have you. So that's a lot of fun. Well, uh, you could find me all over social media under the name Matt Rushing Zero Two, Twitter, Instagram, Letterbox, Vero. There's some other, you know, uh, social media platforms I'm on as well. I feel like there feels like there's a new one every day. Um, but uh, Twitter is probably mostly where I, I hang out. Uh, and you can also find me here on the network. We've got a show called the Six Hundred Two Club and. So we talk a lot of Star Trek on the network, so we got this great place to go hang out where we get to talk about all of the other fans we love. We got some great shows to wrap up the year there uh, as we're going to be hitting Andor and uh, Enola Holmes 2. We've got Avatar Way of Water. I mean, it, it you know, we got a, a whiz-bang end to the year. Uh, you can also find me here doing The Orb with Chris Jones talking about Star Trek Deep Space Nine. Warp 5 about Star Trek Enterprise, Saddle Up about Star Trek Strange New Worlds, and we talked a little bit about the fact that Picard is going to be coming up again. Uh, And with that, Casey, that means Season 3. We'll be diving back in with the Artificial Tango, so make sure you check that out. And I'm over on the Nerd Party Network with a couple of shows. One is completed. I did with Drea Kaufman. It's called Owl Posts, and we did every single chapter of the Harry Potter series one chapter at a time. And then last but not least, 
I'd love it if you checked out Aggressive Negotiations with John Mills. It's a Star Wars podcast, and we just geek out every week talking about Star Wars. But thank you so much for joining us. And until next time, live long and read on. You call that light reading? To each his own, number one.